Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I'm joined by my podcasting partner, Ed Condon. Ed, you're not well. (laughs) No, you look like... (laughs) (laughs) Nice to see you, too. Yeah, I mean, what's do you want to how what what's going on over there? Uh, nothing. It's just a Thursday afternoon. Um, <clears throat> trying to grind out a newsletter, stay on top of some things. I wow, okay. But I mean, you're ill. Yes, I mean, please tell me you're ill. <laughs> I don't feel I don't feel great. I um I, I am suffering under. I, I don't know if it's I I don't know what's wrong with me because I'm I, I have bad sinuses as a general rule. But yeah, you have you get sick. I mean, you. I I basically have a permanent sinus infection, as near as I can tell, but um, that's neither here nor there, and my doctor's been of no help to me whatsoever about that. Uh, But no, this last week and a half has been pretty grim. I don't know if it's allergies, because, you know, we had like a freak couple of days of springtime weather, like where it was 75 to 80 degrees, and all the cherry blossoms and dogwoods popped in our neighborhood, and everything was covered in pollen, so it could be that. Or I could just have a cold. I have been on quite a few airplanes in the last few weeks and months. I'm getting on another one tomorrow. Um, so I have been breathing well. Oh, yeah. You're going to Chicago for a mission. I am going. I'm going um, to Chicago tomorrow for the weekend to, you know, to see some people. To do some things. Do some things. Know what I mean? Um, <laughs> check in on the old hometown. See how it's going. Uh, I've had a couple of very, I've had a series of very, very early morning dentist appointments, which if you've never tried an early morning dentist appointment where you can't breathe through your nose, good for you. Um, so, uh, I guess that's why I perhaps am not looking quite as debonair as you seem to expect me normally to when we were recording no, the just show. I was concerned about you. I, I was just concerned. I mean, I'm just, I was just concerned about you. That's all. Well, JD, I'm just getting old. Sure we're, we're both old men now. We, yeah. we are no longer in the flower of youth. We have, uh, yeah. Actually, I think we're just, I think that we, I think we've talked about this on the show before, but I think that we are on the precipice of our best decade. I think that we're on the verge of something great. No, we are not now that strength, which was in old days, moved heaven and earth, JD. <laughs> okay. We have uh, some things to talk about. We have some very serious things to talk about today. This is, uh, if you've never listened to this show before, this will be a weird one, I guess. They're all weird ones. But this is the podcast that brings you a great Catholic conversation. We talk about things that are happening with the church and the news. There's just a lot of stuff that we honestly don't want to talk about, but it's our, we talk about it because you're talking about it. But before we get to some of the things that we have to jump into, last week on the show we were talking about a, a motu proprio, a, a norm promulgated by uh, the Roman pontiff, the Bishop of Rome, the Vicar of Christ on Earth, His Holiness uh, Pope Francis, peace be upon him. We were talking about a norm which he promulgated, which had to do with um, with the uh, temporal goods of of the uh, various um, dicasteries of the uh, of the Apostolic See. Um, which is to say the various offices of the Roman Curia, the Vatican, and uh, this motu proprio, which the Pope issued, which basically said, all your goods are belong to us. Um, all the things which you have as to castries or which subsidiary organizations of yours uh, uh, have um, are properly speaking ecclesiastical goods, bona ecclesiastica, and must be administered accordingly. And Ed and I were, we were sort of talking and speculating about why that might be, and that sent us on a thing about religious institutes and the great... The uh, the uh, great divestiture of um, of uh, uh, of university property in this country and parish corporation. We talk about all kinds of stuff, but we have since learned more about well, what that. Most importantly, what we discussed last week was although that thing said motu proprio up top, it smelled to me a lot like 
the kind of motu proprio which states, as we talked a little bit, like what seemed like the bleeding obvious. And you only issue a motu proprio like that if someone, if you're basically trying to slap someone down. If you've, and, and this is what we said last week, is you, you asked me what did I think this was all about, and I said, I don't know, but something's going on here behind the scenes. Something's happened, and this is, you know, this is someone getting four fingers to the face and being told to pipe down and, and knuckle under. And lo and behold, it seems it has, because um, we found out this week there, there, was a, there was a rescript, which, you know, we now seem to get one or two a week. Um, it's Rescript City. We are living in a Rescript City, my city guy. We are. Um, but a Rescript was literally tacked to a bulletin board in a square in Vatican City, like in one of the squares in the gardens back behind, you know, near the Governato or whatever. Um, that was the method of its promulgation. Was it was literally like tacked to the Vatican City equivalent. I like that actually. That's like it's old, kind of homespun. I like it. Um, uh-huh. And the rescript basically said, "Hear ye, hear ye!" Effectively, now all all who all who hear can hear. Be aware of this, and then tacking it up there. Exactly, um, announcing that basically, cardinal resident cardinals and prefects of curial dicasteries and secretaries and undersecretaries and senior curial officials basically could no longer have free or subsidized rent in oh, so Vatican this is property. A, basically, a note from your landlord tacked over by the by the laundry machine to the basement. Your, of your cost of living is about to triple. The rent's going up. Yeah, that's exactly. Yeah, your right. cost of living is about to triple. Yeah. Um, we have Vatican Properties LLC care about each of our tenants. Well, so but, this is the interesting thing: is there is no such thing as Vatican Properties LLC, which is why these things indeed. have often been grace. And, you know, we talk about grace and favor apartments. You know, it's why they understood that you know resident cardinals have apartments, and there's a sort of stock of buildings, including residential buildings that the Holy See owns, and some of them are owned directly by you know the, the Holy See, sort of more generally, and some of them are owned specifically by different dicasteries. Uh, Propaganda Fide, for example, has a as a huge property portfolio um, of just, you know, as a result of pious bequests over the centuries of people who've left land or buildings or, or whatever to, to the evangelization, basically to the missions. Um, but there is no centralized Vatican property LLC, but there kind of is now like, or at least the right. legal premise for one has been set up right. by this motu proprio and talking to a few people after I read about this rescript, in fact, you sent me the, re- you, you were the, you sent me, like, you know, this notice of the rescript that popped up on a, an Italian blog first. Someone had taken a picture you of it. You said Latina. I read it all the time. Yeah. And um, and you said, you know, is this is this real? <laughs> so I called around and it was it, it looks a lot like the motu proprio and the rescript rate because the rescript raising the rent basically everywhere in the Vatican um, was technically issued by the Pope before this motu proprio, right. although it was promulgated after. So what happened is the Pope put out this policy that rent, everybody's going to have to pay rent if they were living in ecclesiastical properties. And then it seems like probably what happened is the castries were like, oh, well, good news. These aren't ecclesiastical properties. They're owned by holding prop- companies, which we happen to own. Well, that the Pope was like, or, no, no, no. or also it's a question, and this is what I got from talking to a few people. It's like, for example, if a dicastery owns the building itself and mm-hmm. says, well, you know, part of, part of how we administer the property of – as part of the internal ordering of the dicastery – this this official gets this apartment or gets this cost of living discount or whatever else. And that's just all in-house. It's part of our departmental budgeting. It's not, oh, you know, uh, it, it, there's no external look in here. This is just how we order our own internal budgeting procedure. And so, for example, the secretary of the economy can't touch it um, because, you know, they can they can authorize our budget, but they can't, you know, get in and sort of, you know, have red line, line item veto privileges over how we dispose of our, our temporal goods. 
and what the motor proprio basically is nene moves face all of these assets are are properly speaking ecclesiastical goods and under the immediate jurisdiction of the Holy See. But you, I, it's interesting you say Vatican Property LLC because while there isn't one, this um, this motu proprio kind of creates the opportunity for one. And that was something that um, I was talking to a friend earlier today in Rome who reminded me that like that was something that Cardinal Pell and um, and Liberal Maloney, the former Auditor General of the Vatican had been really keen on at one point was so we should you know one of the ways that the holy see just leaks money is there's absolutely no central oversight of all of this there's no coordination of you know pricing and contract agreement and leaseholding and all of this stuff this should just we should have literally they suggested at one point i think it was in 2017 or 2016 they actually suggested a vatican properties llc effectively and you know people lost right. their ever loving minds and both of them ended up out of jobs for different reasons which is, you know, I was about to say it's neither here nor there. I don't think it's neither here nor there. I think it's very much here. Um, but it's interesting to see that this is another example of, you know, all of the early stage financial reforms that, you know, came in like a roaring tide and then got blocked by a sort of flood wall of opposition led by pillar friend and reader Cardinal Angelo Becciu and others in 2017. Um, they've all come back in. They're all coming back in, and it's Pope Francis's right. name at the bottom of them. I mean, it's, it's fascinating to me to see the the sort of recycling of the of the more radical financial reform agenda from, you know, at this point nearly ten years ago, and it's you know everything old is new again. I, I just find that really interesting. But more to the point, it shows that our initial smell test on this motu proprio last week was right that there was something was going on. Somebody was arguing right. about something, and yeah, you know, that's right. It, these nothing comes nothing comes from nothing comes for no reason. No one ever issues a law just because they think we need a law, right? Exactly. Every law is is a corrective measure. Okay, so what's happening is that card, um, Rome-based cardinals and other sort of senior officials in the Holy See, maybe secretary um, secretaries of prefects, which are like, or excuse me, secretaries of dicasteries, which are like the sort of number twos at the at the offices of the Vatican. They're usually the archbishops people. for sort of perspective on rank, right? And so. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. They're yeah they're. Um, the the prefect is usually a cardinal and the secretary is usually an archbishop ad personum and then uh, from you know from there most of the day to day people probably don't realize this but most of the day to day kind of um, uh, officials who work at the holy see people who work in who who oversee individual desks who who are maybe middle management who are clerics from all over the world they generally live in sort of ecclesiastical residences so the americans who work in the vatican by and large live in the Villa Stretch, right? And the Villa Stretch is a, a kind of a house that is maintained effectively. It's sort of under the aegis of the North American College or the budgets thereof. And um, guys who are assigned by their diocese to work in the Dicasteries of the Holy See, like as a, to oversee the English language desk of X, Y, and Z, or as a translator or whatever, tend, tend to live in the Villa Stretch. It's nice. It's a community of priests who live in community with each other. And, you know, that makes their, their it's life. kind of like a holy frat in mirrors. <laughs> I, I don't know. I've never been in a frat house, but I've never been um, in the Villa Stretch either. So I don't. <laughs> well, the Villa Stretch is fine. It's a good, you know. It's where people who you would say middle management and below sort of live in residences like that. They're they're Villa Stretches for so to speak. The Villa Stretch is named for Cardinal Stretch, an American, but they're Villa Stretches so to speak for um, for people of other nationalities or some people who work in the Vatican, if there if there are not a lot of people who work in the Vatican, priests who work in the Vatican from their country, they might live at their national seminary. So one place where I like to stay when I go to Rome, um, if I have time, general noise, but I, I like to stay at the Polish College, which is the uh, the sort of uh, semi- national seminary for Polish seminarians who are studying in Rome. 
And in addition to the Polish seminarians who are studying in Rome and the priests who who, who form who are their formators, there are also some priests who work in the Holy See who are Polish who who live at the Polish College who have rooms there. So that's kind of how it works for guys who are in the stratosphere of sort of normal in the bureaucratic institution of the of the Holy See. But uh, guys who um, who are cardinals who live in Rome or people who are like at the secretary level who are archbishops these kinds of things, they often have their own residence and these are apartments in buildings which are owned by dicasteries of the Holy See. Um, and often they're like residential buildings in some cases. Like the rest of right. it is apartments as well. Right. Some of them are like properly speaking chancery buildings. So like for example, there's apartments at the top level of the Palazzo Senefizio, which is where the mm-hmm. the congregation, sorry, the dicastery for the Doctor of the Faith is. Uh, the Palazzo Cancelleria, where all the sort of Vatican courts are, the Roman Rota, the Signatura. There's there's apartments in there on one of the, the floors. Penitentiary is there too, I think. Yeah, right? yeah it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of the Rome, some of the prelate auditors of the of the um, of the Roman Rota live there. Some of the priest auditors of the Roman Rota live there, who are kind of the Supreme Court judges of marriage in the church. These kinds of things in apartments of varying sizes. Some of them are big. Uh, some of them are not. I, I've been um, to apartments of some curial officials who have their own residences. They're high, sort of high enough on the chain, or been in Rome long enough that they have their own residences and their apartments, like you'd see in a city. Um, but the city in which they're located is Rome. And so if those apartments start going for market rate, I'm thinking of, you know, people we know, people who work in the road or whatever, who um, who couldn't possibly afford the market rate of those apartments, right? I mean, what, no. what is expected to become of them? I I really don't know. I The terms of the, of the rescript, which raised all the rents, uh, says that current leases will be honored. I mean, that's assuming you have a written lease. I mean, right. you know, as opposed to just sort of being there by sort of customary understanding. Um, I, I don't know what's to become of them. I I think a lot of them are going to have to leave. And I wonder if part of that isn't this is a sort of soft cultural reform by Francis of sort of saying, well, maybe I don't want retired or part-time officials sort of living in the Vatican or around the immediate vicinity. Oh, this only applies to retired or part-time no, officials? No, no, it applies to everyone. Point. I'm just oh, okay. I'm just trying to think about um, you know if you're so some of them may leave. I was saying you can't. Cardinal have... Burke, for example, has an apartment in Rome now. Cardinal Burke doesn't have a full time job in Rome. He's on some things, but he doesn't have a full time job in Rome. Um, I suppose maybe he could afford market rent because he does things. People are generous to him. Those kinds of things, but I don't think he's drawing the kind of salary that would allow him to afford a nice apartment in central. Well, the central Rome. Well, this but... is the thing: is the cardinal's plate, the sort of stipend for Roman cardinals, uh, was five thousand euros a month. And then, uh, in a twenty twenty one round of pay cuts for senior staff, cardinals got a ten percent pay cut, and senior officials got an eight percent pay cut. So it's forty five hundred a month is mm-hmm. is your is your salary your basic salary if you're a roman cardinal of one kind or another but anyway there are a lot of these guys there are there are a lot of um guys is that true if you're the prefect of a dicastery too that 4500 a month is what you're taking i it's my understanding that about 5000 euros a month is the standard uh so salary like of a dicastery prefect making, i think i don't i don't have that written down on a headed document but that's what i've been given to understand from guys i talk to that are working in dicastries so that's about what people are on um but the bottom line is i don't know what people are supposed to do about this and i don't know how you go about assessing fair market rates for some of these places i mean i guess you could do it in ones that are sort of in the city of rome proper but are buildings owned by the holy see but you know if you if you're living in an extraterritorial building you know like for example the palazzo senefizio where um yeah Cardinal Angelo Becciu happens to have a very nice apartment that he 
he renovated some years ago. Um, you know, you're you're technically on Italian soil, but you're in an extraterritorial building. Like, I don't. What's the fair market rate for an apartment right. in a place that basically has diplomatic immunity? Like, I don't know how you assess that. I don't even know how you market it. And how do you? I mean, especially you because far, fair market rent. I mean, the whole the Vatican, not for the extraterritorial places, but places which are extraterritorial, but uh, directly around the, the the Vatican City State. It's a touristed area in a major city, which yeah. means the people who want to rent those apartments are people who want to turn them into Airbnbs. Right. And, you know, the, that drives up the, you know, the rent of everybody who lives in that area. Well, and then you've got security concerns. You, I mean, I, so what is the thought about what will happen? I mean, we, we know why this is happening. This is happening because the Vatican City State and the Apostolic Sea are in a significant cash crunch. They're broke. And this is presumably a way to increase revenue. Oh, um, no, it's not presumably. It, was, it says in the rescript this is because of the particularly severe economic crisis. No, I say presumably because I find myself wondering how much it could really be worth. And so, well, okay, so let me give you this. I was talking to a friend of mine who who works in a senior position in Vatican finances um, today, and they ballparked for me uh, around about a fifty percent drop off in contributions to the Holy See. Over the last two years, based upon speculation, or that they no, not going to look at that Re- reasonable knowledge. It's a ballpark, but they said you know we're yeah. talking about somewhere in the region of a fifty million euro hit, which the last the last year for which we have consolidated financial statements for the Holy See it concerned the twenty twenty one fiscal year where they were running a def- a revised deficit. They were supposed to, they had a projected deficit of about thirty million. They revised it down to three million because they recategorized some stuff. Um, but let's say that's. That's those. Those are both fair and accurate approximations of the current state of play. Because even in their consolidated financial statements for 2021, the Holy See financial officials said in public, "This looks pretty good. Like a three million euro shortfall on a 1.1 billion euro budget is, you know, we're we're pretty much there in terms of balancing the books." But they said 2022 and 2023 are going to be really hard. So let's just say it's just that shortfall. And there's no other aggregating factors like you took a hundred million euro bath on a London building you had to sell, for example. You're, you're talking about a 55 million euro annual deficit? That's a lot. You're going to have to get that from somewhere. I don't know. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know how you go about it. But I mean, again, the, the, this is kind of a funny thing that I've been thinking about this afternoon is, you know, all right, there's a lot of unanswered questions. And again, if you if you were, if this were a reversion to the original sort of Pell Maloney plan of well, we should have a kind of Vatican property LLC, if only there was an agency of the Holy See that's erected specifically to guard its stable patrimony and administer its you know immovable goods, like you know you could, they could call it like the I don't know um, the administration for the patrimony of the apostolic. So you could abbreviate it to something like APSA. I don't know. I do call me crazy. Um, if you had a sort of property management LLC. That was sort of a commercial real estate venture, minder, third party, whatever, for all of this stuff. You could stock it. This was the original sort of Pell Maloney proposal. Stock it with sort of, you know, lawyers and commercial real estate experts from around the world who could, you know, could answer some of these questions and say, well, this is how we're going to take a systematic approach. And you could have a sort of centralized management, even if the, you know, the the beneficial ownership was shared across different dicasters of the Holy See and it paid into different pots or whatever. You could at least ensure a unified kind of approach to all this. We don't have that as yet. I I can only assume that they're going to have to come up with one fairly quickly or assign that responsibility to someone fairly quickly because... 
the rescript saying all the mates rates and you know um, beneficial usage and grace and favor and stuff that's all over from now somebody's going to have to answer these questions in a hurry I wonder if they haven't a little bit put the cart before the horse on this one but we'll see yeah yeah I mean, I guess we'll find out if there if it gets to a point where there's a kind of a moving day, or whether people, or whether there's a sort of back down over that, or the kind of um, pro forma extension of leases that exist, or these kinds of things. Well, it says that they got any any extension is going to have to be individually approved by the Pope personally. So yeah. I think there's going to be a long line of guys outside the audience chamber asking for five minutes and holding their lease in their hand and saying, you know, I mean, don't get me wrong, I think it's good if members of the Roman Curia live like clerics live all over the world, including uh, cardinal members and archbishop members of the Roman Curia live like clerics live all over the world. And I think it's generally speaking not good for anyone to live alone, um, especially a person especially a person who's in charge of things. So um, th- there may well indeed be a sort of apostolic value to this, right? If, um, if everybody has to move into the villa stretch of their into their own villa stretch, as it were, to the kind of place where the, wherever the clerics of their nationality tend to live, or into the house of religious, or something like that. I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. I think that's probably could in, indeed be a very very healthy healthy thing. I just don't I don't imagine it will go over very well with people who have grown accustomed to the places where they live. I think that's right. I mean, it it is in the blessed code, JD, that common life among clerics is yeah is is to be considered the norm and encouraged in in all things. That's absolutely right. So, I don't know. I, anyway, sorry, that, that was a longer diversion down that track than I intended. There's other stuff we wanted to talk about, but that was... I just, I found that interesting, and I continue to think about it, and I'm going to be thinking about it probably overnight, and I'll probably end up writing something about it tomorrow. But I think about it all the time. Oh, here's what I was going to say, and this is what I'm probably going to find myself <laughs> writing about tomorrow. But I don't need the same. When I'm on a plane to, to my old hometown, the great city of Chicago, just, you know, checking in a few things. Where you are. Um... Sweet home Chicago. I, I On the plane, I may end up writing something to the effect of this, which is, if the Holy See is running a massive budget deficit, and we don't really know because they haven't put out any kind of indications. Normally, they put out something in January. No, I mean, they. oh, yeah, they haven't put anything out yeah. in 2023. Yeah. Um, but let's assume that things are as bad as they're looking and that this is, you know, this is a sign of exactly how bad things are. Um, this is good PR. Yeah. That's this right. is good PR. This is getting serious. This is this is them saying we're you know you, you might say how much can you really raise from all this and I don't know the answer to that. Maybe you can make up a fifty million euro deficit by renting out the plush apartments. But imagine if you started laying off lay people and you hadn't first well there's set that, up that. But again, if the major shortfall, the major income shortfall, is coming from donations that are no longer arriving that used to. One of the way, and uh, you know, who can blame people if they're being a little bit cautious about saying, yeah, I'm going to throw into Peter's Pence or whatever because. You know, all I'm seeing is financial scandal, trials, all this sort of stuff. The way you win those people back is you show good faith. You say, look, we are taking a serious look at spending the money we have on the things that really matter and are mission critical yeah. to the Holy See. And anybody who says, oh, sure, but, Claire, but cardinals are still living in the lap of luxury, mm-hmm. you can point rather concretely and say, well. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's a good. I I think it's an interesting move. I don't know how what the practical financial outcomes of this will be, but I think it's an interesting move of good PR. And and there are probably some other similar moves they could make. There's some prudent investments of um, both uh, minimal financial capital and emotional capital to to assure people that they really are serious about tightening tightening up the ship. Be interesting. 
Sorry. Okay, I'm really done now. I promise. Good. Okay. Uh, no, actually, I, I'm not saying good because I don't think that was interesting. I do think it was interesting. But I know, as well as you do, that the whole um, thing that was going on there was that you don't want to talk about the other stuff that we need to talk about today. That's also true. But we're going to talk about it. Uh, but first, a word from our sponsor. This week's episode of The Pillar Podcast is brought to you by Decided Excellence Catholic Media, a print media company that specializes in community and parish magazines. And did you know that there are parishes all over the country that have partnered with Decided Excellence Catholic Media to publish their own parish magazine? I'm told uh, that parishioners love them, that the magazines communicate the good works of the parish, strengthens community, and has even, I, I'm told this and I find it quite extraordinary, brought parishioners back to Mass. So Why? What does a parish magazine do that a bulletin or a social media presence doesn't? Well, it can get to 100% of registered parishioners, not just those who attend Mass and have, you know, remembered to grab a bulletin on their way out, or those who follow the parish's social media presence or anything like that. It can reach non-registered and non-practicing Catholics who live within the parish boundaries. It can be an evangelical tool in that sense. And nobody has to worry about it getting lost in a sort of social media algorithm or, you know, reducing down the message you want to put out to fit, you know, whatever the minimum number of Twitter characters is or to fit on a Facebook window. You know, you can say it in your own way, in your own time, at your own speed. Well, how does it work? Do parishes make these magazines? That seems like a lot of work. No, each magazine features a family from within the parish. It can highlight parish ministries. The parish can produce its own evangelical and catechetical content, but it can be supplemented um, from decided excellences library of articles from people like Bishop Robert Barron, Scott Hahn, and there's an editorial design team that will guide the parishes through the publication process each month. So you get that kind of support and it helps ensure that the content is professional, well laid out, all that kind of stuff. Okay. So uh, if you're a pastor and you're listening to this um, podcast or a bishop who could talk to your entire diocese about this or um, I suppose if you're a parochial vicar, you might even have some sway over this. Or if you work in a parish or if you attend a parish and just think this sounds good, go to decidedexcellence.com slash parish. That's decidedexcellence.com slash parish. You can learn more there. And then you can talk to the people at your parish about bringing a parish magazine like this to your parish today. Seems pretty cool to me. Decidedexcellence.com slash parish. And uh, I hope my own pastor is listening because it sounds cool. I would read it. I certainly I want to be the family now, actually. You probably will be. No, I'll probably not. Uh, decidedexcellence.com slash parish. Welcome back to the Pillar Podcast. Ed and I didn't start the fire. It's been always burning since the world's been turning. Ed, we didn't start the fire. No, but I don't remember signing up to manage it. <laughs> I don't know that we're managing it. We just talk about it. All right. I don't know that we do have to talk about it. Don't you get tired of talking about the fire all the time, J.D.? Uh, yeah, we do. Yes. No, you don't. Well, you love it. That's why we're here. No. No. Look, uh, Ed and I have been having a conversation about the podcast. Ed and I – I'm just going to put it out. Ed and I have been having a conversation about the podcast because um, when we started podcasting together, there were challenges that the church was facing. Actually, when we started podcasting together, it was the it was like 2018. It was the height of the McCarrick stuff. And the question was, how is the Holy See going to deal with this? How is the USCCB going to deal with this? How are dioceses going to deal with this? And that's a big part of what we talked about. We talked about Pell in the early years. We talked about this USCCB stuff and McCarrick and Vosestis Lex Mundi and all of those things. And all those things continue to be challenges in the life of the church. But there are more and compounding challenges in the life of the church. And um, we feel like 
this in this podcast we talk about them and we talk about them in a serious way and we talk about them because we think it's important to know about them and to talk about them but we we also like we're sons of the church and um we love the church as our mother and we know that there are a lot of good things that are happening in the life of the church i was really excited that today at the on at, at the pillar we had a story about a fledgling children's adoration sort of approach uh, approach to sort of children's adoration in a parish in virginia and 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 I just think things like that are cool, and there are many, many cool and good things that are happening in the life of the church. But there is also a compounding, um, profound, and continuing theological controversy in the church that is uh, that is not abating, but instead is um, growing. It's wax, waning. Not, I don't know which one the moon does, but it's the one where the moon's getting bigger. And that's, uh, that's waxing, and, JD, and you should know that. It's, it's waxing because you add because wax adds volume to something. Have you never waxed wrath? I think that's a mortal sin. I, I suppose it probably is. Rage is a sin. Yeah. I don't know what waxing wrath means, Ed. Um, but uh, look, the the point is, we were talking before the show about just how how do we don't want to be uh, we we don't want to make a show that is a sort of like here's the latest from the crisis in the church, and that's why you should buy our. Uh, canned food and and uh, and subscribe to our Patreon and join our um, club of of I don't know I don't know what the YouTube people say but we don't we don't want to make a, a sort of um, fear mongering controversy driving controversy elevating or escalating kind of a show and yet as we look at the honest to God situation in the life of the church right now between bishops we see increasing serious and significant unabated. The waxing theological controversy that needs to be addressed, that is basically going unaddressed, and uh, we feel some degree to talk, some degree of responsibility to talk about it. And at the same time, we don't want to talk about it because, um, well, on the one hand, we feel like it's all we talk about. And we don't want to make a show where we're just sort of every time like, can you believe this crisis? It's a terrible crisis. That doesn't seem like an interesting show to us. We want you to get more from this than that. And at the same time, we don't want to seem to be uh, either. Um, again, sort of uh, perpetuating the notion that there's a crisis just to sort of sell ad space on our podcast or downplaying it because we want to give a Pollyannish view of the church. So we feel, I don't know. Um, it's just not somewhat fun, bad. J.D. That's the it's thing. It's less fun. It's less this fun than talking about. This podcast is supposed to, we, when we started this show in a different place. I, I started by saying, we started by podcasting about McCarrick and now you're going to say how it used to be fun. So I don't no, know No, but it was, it was, we, I mean, there we was. We've always nerded out about canon law on this show. Yeah. This has been a show where we kind of nerd out about canonical minutia and we used to do the things where, like the Gwen Stefani getting married yeah. chapel thing and the Disney princesses valid marriages thing and all those things are important and good. But we just see, you know, and all those things are also fun and we want to do those things, but Whenever we sort of get half a mind to do them, there's a week like this week where it's just bishops and cardinals blowing stuff up, blowing in, blowing up ecclesial collegiality in a way that we feel like we have to talk about it, but we don't want to just make a boring crisis show. I don't know. It's just – I don't know. You talk for a bit. I don't know. I, I do feel that way. I mean the other part of it is, you know – at a certain point, I mean, this is this always comes down to here's my level of discomfort with this, and it's kind of twofold. Um, one is everything you just said. One is everything about you know the purpose of the podcast is is it's fun. You know, people we enjoy talking to each other. I enjoy people talking to me about the show and what they enjoy about the show. It's you know there there is a social aspect 
to the podcast. We can agree. Um, and that, that is just, yes. And, and part of that is giving a show to the ladies and gentlemen at home who, which they want to listen to, which they look forward to listening to every week. And if it's just miserable and angst ridden and everything else week after week, then I feel like, you know, I I don't look forward to making it in that, in those circumstances. And so why would anyone look forward to listening to it? Uh, So there's that. The other thing is, and this is more, um, this is more about what are we for? What are we doing? What is the pillar? What what do we do? And, and, and see, we told you we're having an existential crisis. You guys, I no, we're not having an existential crisis. I'm not, that's, that's weird. Um, but you're just asking, you're just asking at a point of, at a point of uh, per, gr- profound personal challenge and confusion, what we're all about and what we're for. No, I, I wouldn't call that an existential crisis. Just it's a moment of professional reflection. Um, <laughs> no, and it's this. I mean, I don't, I don't like the word. I certainly don't like to self-ascribe the word journalist because we're, we are journalists. I'm aware that that's what people call us. Um, we're, I, I take that as a, I'm proud of being a journalist. That's fine. I prefer reporter. Okay. That, that is primarily what we do is we, we, we report news. We report news. We go out, we get facts, we, we talk to it, people, we, find it. we, we travel to places and talk to people about things. And then we tell people what we know. And, you know, I mean, we have fun in our individual newsletters because, you know, everybody needs a little bit of an outlet. Uh, but but as uh, most of what we do for most of the week when we're having a really when we really feel like we're firing out all cylinders because we're reporting a lot of news. Right. But at the same time, we're only human. I'm only human. And, you know, when you have, you know, bishops and cardinals trading essays in in different places and stuff, I, you know, I have my own thoughts about that. And I, you know, I, if you prick us, yes. do we not bleed? Like I have, the you know, it, it distresses me when I see incredibly bad cod theology being you know, promoted and discussed. And when I see canon law being bastardized and, you know, treated as a, as a sort of fake thing that, you know, can be used and abused just as an exercise of power, you know, that's just, that, that, that gets to me. And I don't know. I, I, I just, I worry that it, you know, it, it's hard to, it's hard to stay dispassionate if we then have to also, on top of all that, sit down for an hour and a half a week and talk about stuff about which I try right. most a conflict of the, between. Yeah, I don't want to have strong opinions about this stuff when I'm trying to report the facts. And then it right. feels like we have to sit down and say, well, how am I not supposed to have a strong opinion about this? And, you know, I try not to for the rest of the week. Yeah. Yeah. It's a conflict. And, uh, and we are navigating it. Look, I think, I honestly think that, uh, journalism, so to speak, is in a place now where a lot of people don't know what a reporter is or what what, jur- what journalists are supposed to do for precisely this reason. We aim to do the thing where we report the news and we really like doing that and we think it's important and it's why we founded the pillar. And yet here we talk about the news. We talk about things that are happening in the news and there's no way to do that without offering our – I don't think there's any way to do that without offering our own perspectives on it or at least coming from our own perspectives. And I'm fine with that. But it does present certain challenges and certain tensions. And at the same time, there's also a lot of challenges to being a Catholic right now. Because the fact of the matter is, if you're a thinking Catholic right now, you are aiming both to maintain communion with the church, to have a proper filial piety and deference and, and obedience to the Bishop of Rome. And at the same time, you're probably seeing an increasing number of significant theological controversies moving in the life, emerging in the life of the church, which are not being addressed. This is a challenging 
moment for the life of the church. And the way that many people seem to handle that in a public forum is is to like go full bore, like, well, the Pope isn't really the Pope, you know, I mean, just, or the Pope's the worst person, all of this kind of stuff, or to be Pollyannish and stick their head in the sand and pretend that that's not what's happening in the life of the church. But Or to is. say, if you point out that something that has been written by a bishop or a cardinal or whatever doesn't make sense or is not in accord with church, you say, well, that's, that's clearly just a proxy attack on the Pope because you can't. But, but on the other hand, to the extent that there's an implicit criticism of the Pope in criticizing something which has gone unaddressed in... In the life of the church, okay, fine, I, I'm fine with that. But this is our problem. This is our problem. We're talking to you about it, to you guys about it, because it struck us in all of this struck us in particularly acute ways this week. Because uh, a bishop suggested that several other um, members of the uh, College of Bishops, that several members indeed of the College of Cardinals, have committed the uh, canonical crime of heresy, and that that needs to be addressed. And then subsequently, today, Cardinal Robert McElroy, one of the guys that the other guy, Bishop Papraki said committed the crime of heresy, Cardinal McElroy issued, published an essay in America Magazine that we both read and find theologically deficient. We find serious theological problems in what Cardinal McElroy has written. Not because we're against the Pope or against Cardinal McElroy or we want to sell you subscribing to our Patreon, because we read the damn thing and it strikes us as having a lot of problems. And, well, I mean, the other thing is, for me, and, and this is something you said about, you know, it's it's hard to be a thinking Catholic right now, is taking our own personal reaction to any one or other thing that we've read out of it and just saying, wherever you land on this, there are two very definite articulations of matters of faith and morals going on in the church right now. And they are being done from positions of authority. They're being done by bishops and cardinals and archbishops and bishops conferences in different places, not just here in Germany and Italy and France, um, you know, in, in all over the place. And, and these are, these are not subjects of idle theological speculation. This is not how many angels can dance on the head of a pen. This is not sort of, you know, obscure speculative theology. This is, this is practical applied moral theology that is mutually exclusive, that, you know, both sides of this argument cannot be right. One is right, the other one is wrong. One is teaching error, one is teaching truth. And again, I'm not saying you have to say, well, this one is teaching truth and this one's teaching. I'm just saying, without having a personal take on it, they are mutually exclusive propositions on matters of faith and morals. And if the wrong one gains ground and becomes commonly accepted and is wrong, that leads souls away from God. That imperils souls with hell. And that is terrifying to me and extremely distressing. I mean, and if you don't believe that that's true, I mean, the, this is the thing is, you know, the great sort of, you know, possible, you know, who dare we to hope that no one, you know, that hell is empty as, um, as one cardinal now deceased said to my face once that we do not know that anyone is in hell. And I mean, the only rationale for suggesting that no one is in hell is if you don't actually believe in the consequences of sin. That, that ultimately, that's what it boils down to. And that's actually what it seems to me that a lot of what is currently being debated boils down to is, is sin a real thing or not? And I mean, if you don't think that sin's a real, I don't know. I, I, I honestly don't know where to go with that. And I also don't think like it's, it shouldn't be my job. It shouldn't be your job. We're reporters. They're, the church is full of intelligent, well-read, thoughtful, grounded pastors and bishops and cardinals and scholars and academics, this is their job. 
We're, so the options are that we stopped in the podcast. Two guys with a substack. It's, you know, why do I feel like we're the ones it's trying to hold back? I know, but you know what I mean. The options are that we stop doing the podcast and all we do is report this stuff as if we, do, as if we don't. As if we don't have anything to say into it, or we have we continue to live with a kind of tension in which we talk about very serious things, and also we report news, and we recognize that there are some tensions there. And if people lambast us for the fact that there are tensions there, well, because I do think that we should talk about this, and I do think it matters. Cardinal McElroy published an essay today in which he says, um, "It is automatically an objective mortal sin for a husband and wife to engage in a single act of sexual intercourse using utilizing artificial contraception." This means the level of evil present in such an act is objectively sufficient to sever one's relationship with God. What does he say again? It is automatically an objective mortal sin for a husband and wife to engage in a single act of sexual intercourse utilizing artificial contraception. Now he makes a juxtaposition. It is not automatically an objective mortal sin to physically or psychologically abuse your spouse. It is not automatically an objective mortal sin to exploit your employees. It is not automatically an objective mortal sin to discriminate against a person because of her, gen- his or her of her gender or ethnicity or religion. It is not automatically an objective mortal sin to abandon your children. What the cardinal is trying to do is to say that the church has a definition of sin that has an has a, a disordered approach to questions of sexuality, where the church always considers sexual sins to be, he says, object what he calls objective mortal sins, but does not consider other kinds of evils to be what he calls objective mortal sins. And that the church needs to change this. Okay, here's the thing. And again, I don't, having recognized all those tensions uh, and recognizing the challenge in them and wanting to point out that I've been trying to interview Cardinal McElroy for a month. I've been asking him for an interview so I can ask him about these things in a journalistic way, just ask him to elaborate on some of these things for me. But here's the thing. What the f*** does any of this mean? What is an objective mortal sin? I have some degree of training in moral theology um, and I can say that a mortal sin is a sin in which involves grave matter, intentionality to do the thing, and uh, a, the freedom of the will, right? I mean, the, these are the components of mortal sin, some knowledge of the gravity of the thing, the choice of the thing. You know, th- this is what a mortal sin is, and a grave matter. I think that when Cardinal McElroy says an objective mortal sin, what he means is, an objectively grave matter because you can't have an objective mortal sin because again, two, two of those criteria that I laid out um, that the person has sort of sufficient reflection on the thing itself and, and, and the full consent of the will and appreciation of the gravity on the, uh, of the thing and then a full consent of the will. Those are subjective things. They're rooted in the person. They're rooted in a su- in subjectivity, right? So objective mortal sin, I think what he means is objective grave matter. In which case, what he's saying is it is automatically objectively grave matter for husband and wife to engage in a single act of sexual intercourse utilizing artificial contraception. I agree. Then he says it's not automatically an objective mortal sin. It's not automatically objective grave sin to physically or psychologically abuse your spouse. Yeah, it is. Of course it is. It's profoundly grave matter to psychologically or physically abuse your spouse. He says it's not automatically an objective mortal sin to exploit your employees. Yes, it is. It's profoundly grave matter to exploit your employees, to, to be economically unjust to people in a particular way. Of course it is. I don't understand what this is getting at at all, Ed. And there's this war among the bishops right now about the place of the church's teaching on sexuality, which is emerging here in the United States and most profoundly, of course, in Germany and Switzerland and all these other places where Cardinal Hallerick says we need to completely rethink our uh, the church's approach to sexual morality and all these things. But then you read the arguments and I... <sighs> I don't understand. I don't any, see what the there is there. I don't understand any any through line of coherence that says 
The church recognizes is again, I, I don't understand where this phrase came from, uh, objectively grave sin or whatever. Like it doesn't, as you say. Obje- it, no, objectively grave sin is a re- yeah. perfectly reasonable phrase. Objective mortal sin Objective doesn't make any sense sin. because two elements of mortal sin are, are rooted in the subjectivity right. of the person. Right. So I don't understand how you, you can say, oh, well, the any act of artificially contents, contracepted intercourse between a husband and wife is that, but abandoning your child is not. Like what? What? I, of course it is. Don't abandon your child. It's a great matter. I don't understand. I, I don't understand. No, but I'm saying I if don't. If you choose to abandon your child, uh, if you choose to abandon your child with a full act of the will and full knowledge, you... You've committed a moral sin, right? I mean, I don't... I don't... I, and I don't... But the thing is, I don't know where you even get that from. Like, what is the text that is being cited here? What is the body of teaching that this comes from? And and, and I I mean, I don't want... I mean, Cardinal McElroy is by, all, by every account I've heard an intelligent and well-educated man. So I continually want to give him the benefit of the doubt that maybe he's making a point that I'm too thick to understand... But if someone could please explain to me a coherent reading of this argument that says, ah, well, a husband and a wife using contraception at any time, for any instance, for any reason, is always this highest level of mortal sin, objectively speaking. And abandoning your child is not. Like, show me any reading of of the church's magisterium, of the catechism, of the moral law, of scripture, of anywhere else that allows you to, to say that. I, I can't think of one. And what it seems to me to be that this boils down to, and this is not just something that I've seen in, in Cardinal McElroy's sort of America essays as, as they are coming to be a series. Um, but you, you see also in places like the German Synodal Way and things like that is what the argument seems to be is if you think that it's possible to sin gravely sexually, then you have a disorder purient interest in sex, which is very, very weird, and is also itself a, a, a real debasement of, of the dignity of sexuality, I think. Um, but And it seems to be, it's like the tactic that, I mean, I don't know, there's, it's funny. It, it's like when you try and embarrass someone into not pursuing an argument by sort of saying, you know, uh, to, to sort of shame someone into not questioning their logic. Yeah, it's, it's plainly obvious to anyone who can see, to, it's plainly obvious to anyone with have a brain that blah, blah, blah. It's like, You've you've tried all you've done is sort of just shut down anybody who doesn't think otherwise by a sort of implied um, personal insult. Yeah, I, I, I mean, you, I, this is something I did find personally objectionable in his first America essay. I pointed out in my newsletter, which was to sort of you know put side by side people who are happy to articulate the church's actual teaching on, for example, the nature of same sex sexual acts versus people. Who experienced same-sex attraction and the distinction between the two and everything. And Cardinal Macro's first sort of America essay came very, very close, I would say deliberately so, to saying, well, that's demonic homophobia. And I just I I find it really aggressively sort of spitefully unpleasant. Like it seems that what the Cardinal is saying is we're tolerant of certain kinds of sins and we're not sufficiently tolerant of grave sexual sin. And the reason I think that is because the essay that he published today in America spends a lot of time on conscience and sort of saying the church teaching is important. I'm not even going to say sort of saying, saying uh, church teaching is uh, uh, important. Um, 
But uh, uh, while church Catholic teaching has an essential role in moral decision-making, it is a conscience that has the privilege place. Uh, we do have an obligation to follow our consciences, but our consciences are effectively our informed wills. Newman talks about the conscience as the aboriginal vicar of Christ. Um, the conscience is the way by which we apply moral principles to spe specific and particular situations, and we should do that in a manner with integrity, which is what it means to observe our conscience. But the, the moral principles from which we draw to make decisions, per, the particular decisions of the conscience, are God's revelation as revealed to us in sacred scripture and sacred tradition and interpreted for us by the magistrate of the church. That's the, the source material for the conscience. So this notion of sort of juxtaposing Catholic doctrine and conscience, I, I, I don't understand. And the only thing I can take it to mean is to say, when we talk about you know, people who are uh, the inner conversation of conscience with people who people have with their God and discerning moral choices in complex circumstances as a sort of juxtaposition against Catholic doctrine is that the conscience might lead us to do something apart from what God has revealed to us is true. And it seems to me that in the church, in the, in the way that this is laid out in the actual magisterial text of the church, the conscience can't tell us to do something which is a sin, only to move ever, ever closer towards holiness. And I'm not saying it seems to me. That's just Catholic doctrine. Uh, again, I, I, I don't know how to engage with stuff like this logically, J.D. The, yeah. The answer, I think, is this. To, Ed, no, but to suggest said, that abandoning your child is not of the same – that it's somehow church teaching that, the, that abandoning your child is not of the same moral gravity as contraception. And it's like, it's like – I, I, I just – I genuinely don't know how to engage with a statement like that. It just doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. And we, I think, look, we have always said that the kind of journalism we do is we do journalism which presupposes that the teachings of the church are true. That just as every journalist presupposes that gravity is real, we presuppose that the doctrinal teachings of the church are true. That, I think, requires us at times to make informed judgments and to ask others and to consult with others, but to sort of try to parse out what the church says and then to juxtapose what the church says is true and then to juxtapose that with what people in the church are saying. There will be more and more of this because Cardinal McElroy in recent weeks has, and again, I've ho hoped and hoped and hoped to interview him. And I really just want to have a conversation. Like it's not, I don't want to, I'm not trying to sandbag the guy. I just want to interview him. Um, uh, but uh, he hasn't gone for it. But, um, but Cardinal McElroy, you know, and uh, a number of other bishops are advancing effectively a call for changes to the church's doctrinal teaching, which they would call a development of doctrine. And I do think that part of our job is to juxtapose that fairly, I think, as we, as in, as informed as we can do it. Um, but I think the job of all thinking Catholics, honestly, is to juxtapose that with what the actual definitive magisterial teaching of the church is. And that sometimes that means trying to endeavor to ensure to understand precisely what the definitive magisterial teaching of the church is and then have some juxtaposition there. And uh, it, it's just... Um, Cardinal McElroy has been publishing essays and giving lectures calling for changes to the church's approach to doctrinal teaching on sexuality and, uh, and, and the Eucharist. In his essay today, he insisted actually that these questions are pastoral and not doctrinal, although I didn't see precisely an argument for that so much as an assertion to that extent, uh, to, the, to that effect. Um, but uh, as Cardinal McElroy does that, Bishop Pragi has suggested that Cardinal McElroy and other, uh, and other cardinals have um, committed a heresy. And we had a conversation with Bishop Paprocki about that. Very honestly, I think you and I would both agree there were parts of what Bishop Paprocki said about the notion of heresy and penalties that 
didn't seem to us entirely to jive with the law either. I mean, is that fair? Ed? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, we we had a back and forth with Bishop Prokhi about this on, on, which you know was on the bonus episode. People can listen to it, but you know, I'm not. I, I understand what he was saying about things that are explicitly delineated in in the New Testament as teachings, for example, on worthiness to receive Holy Communion and stuff like that. But when we're talking about the distinction of of heresy and just erroneous teaching in the church, you know, the, the law makes a clear distinction between credenda teachings and tenenda teachings. Those teachings are to be believed with divine and Catholic faith and those which are to be held as definitive by all the faithful. I mean, in practice, one is not more um, open to change than the other. They're both definitive, but they are still different levels. And the difference is that a tenenda teaching is a sort of contingent upon, hangs upon a development of a credenda teaching. So, for example, the sacramental nature of the priesthood is a credenda teaching. The reservation of priestly ordination to men alone is a tenenda teaching because it is a, it is a, a subsidiary teaching of the sa- on, on sacramental ordination. It's you know it's a development of that, and it's still definitive. It has to be held by all the faithful. You are still, according to the law, liable to a kind of punishment canonically if you obstinately doubt or deny a tenenda teaching. But it is a tenenda teaching. It's you know defined as such by Saint John Paul II, who you know said it was, and he said in, in the text, this is to be definitively held, Tenenda. So in the same way, some of the stuff that Cardinal McElroy was writing about and Bishop Apraki was responding to on, in, for example, worthiness to receive Holy Communion, I mean, the sacramental nature of Holy Communion, the, you know, the, the true presence, all of that is a credenda teaching for sure. I think it, it's at least, it's not clear to me that worthiness to receive is necessarily also a credenda teaching rather than a tenenda teaching that is a development and contingent sub-teaching on, of the credenda teaching on, on Holy Communion. That's not immediately apparent to me. I could see it going one way or the other. But yeah, I I wasn't entirely sold by the entirety of um, Bishop Aprocki's, uh rationale as laid out in his in his first things essay. You know, he you know, and we talked about this with him. You know, he didn't address um, obstinacy that you know it has to be obstinate. Yeah, he seemed to say. He seemed to say that you could commit, you could sort of hold something which is contrary to the teaching of the church and the, and by that, like without saying it, and by that incur an excommunication. And I don't think that's true. I think that you have to do a thing which is obstinate. So I, it seemed to me that this wasn't actually the crux of his argument by any stretch of the imagination, yeah. but it was a sort of side point that he made yeah. where he where he, he seemed to say one could incur an excommunication without having done a thing which demonstrates obstinance, right? Yes. Yeah. And so the, I think there's an issue there that... Bishop of Prague would need to work out if he wanted to develop his theory, although it wasn't immediately germane to this question, nearly yeah. as germane as this question of credente teaching. Yeah. But this is what I mean about, you know, I just, it's hard to cover this stuff because it's upsetting on all sides. That's all. Yeah. And it points to the fact that the church is in a period of, uh, of, of uh, it points to the fact that the church is in a period of, of significant theological crisis. And I think, you know, Ed, I think what we're kind of talking about is a sense that our a vocation as journalists or our apostolic work as journalists is not merely to sort of document that. And we position ourselves in a way where we can't just document that because we do the show, among other things, but not merely to just sort of document that, but to document that in a way which aims to really engage with the question of what is true and what is true for me is synonymous with um, what does Catholicism teach? What does the magisterium teach? And there are times where that really means that, you know, 
bishops on all sides of an issue may well be talking, you know, expressing things that are, look, there are a lot of bishops who, are, in the way that they talk about gender identity, presume that the church teaches certain things that it doesn't, or presume, you know, that suitable disposition to receive the sacrament means that a person who has, like, had a gender transition needs to absolutely skew that, and that seems to me to be sort of well beyond the law as well. So there are lots of issues on which we sort of have to parse out what does the church actually teach here and then how are bishops interpreting it? And we have to do that here too. But part of the reason it's uncomfortable is because there's no, I don't think there's any reasonable denying the fact that the church is in a period of profound theological conflict over the nature of sin, the nature of human agency, and especially how those two things relate to sexuality. And we hate to be the guys that are sort of like, there's a crisis, you know, by our book. Um, but the church is in a moment of profound theological controversy, which has not yet been resolved definitively by the Holy See, by our book. Um, we don't have a book. I'm not writing we a, book. a book. We're not writing a book. I'm not writing a book. <laughs> yeah. I was talking to a bishop about this the other night, and um, uh, part of all of this, I think, is kind of driving head on into the realization that the great theological controversies of the church's history are not only confined to the history books and our modern era is, there's no reason to think that our modern era is exempted from the reality of significant divisive theological controversy among bishops. You know, after the Second World War, right, they call the Second World War the war to all war, end all wars, is that right? No, that was the First World War. Oh, they call the First World War the war to end all wars. Oh, even more so, right? So then you have the Second World War, but then people are like, well, now we've achieved this thing called peace in Europe, right? And, uh, and and so last year when Russia invaded Ukraine and you have this significant global power ground war, land war in Europe, people are kind of, many people were disoriented by that. We thought that this kind of war was a thing of the past, not at least not for here and not for now, right? Maybe this happens in sort of faraway places, but not here and certainly doesn't happen now here. Um, and so we, for a lot of people, I think the Ukraine, Russia-Ukraine war has been a reminder that there's no immunity of our period in, in history from the very real and typical common human conflicts which emerge into war. And I think this, in a similar way, is would disabuse anyone of the notion that the, the, that the church in its contemporary lived reality is exempt from the profound theological crises and divisions which have preceded it. We'd like to use the language of sort of conciliation. It's one of the points that Paprocki makes is we don't like to say words like heresy anymore. We like to use the language of sort of conciliation and uh, and pretend that the church can sort of present one unified sort of brand to the world, as it were. But that's never been the nature of ecclesial society because we're trying to know and understand and live the truth. And when you're trying to do that, people will people hold that very dearly. They're, it's What we're trying to know and understand is the meaning of our lives fundamentally. And that's something people hold dearly enough to really fight about. And now that's happening in, a, I think, a significant way that has amplified, what I'm trying to say is has amplified in our own country, not just like, can you believe those guys in Germany, but amplified in our own country. Just in recent weeks, just in the past few weeks, many of these theological crises have, or controversies have amplified considerably. And so we have to sort of think about that as a part of the real, lived reality of the church and, and, and not sort of think that that's merely the stuff of the fourth century or whatever. Yeah, Francis Fukuyama is an idiot. In ecclesiology right, exactly. and everything else, yes. Yeah, right, exactly. That's right. Uh, exactly. That's exactly right. All right. Well, 
there you have it, guys. We don't we have more questions about our what we're doing than answers, but we're trying to be here and we're trying to talk about this stuff because we think it matters and we think it's real. The Pillar Podcast, whatever that is, is a production of Pillar Media, whatever that is, and Ed and JD Production. Our executive producer is Kate Oliveira. She's doing a great job. We'll be back next week with whatever this is. Bye.